We'll be in First Peter chapter 2 this afternoon, and I'll begin reading with verse 8, and read through to verse 15. First Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 8, And a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them who stumbled at the word, being obedient, disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a people of his own, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. Having your behavior honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Shall we pray? Loving Father, that you may add your blessing upon the reading of the word this afternoon, and that you may be glorified through your word and that we may take in that word into our lives, and that we may learn to understand and to grow in the things of Christ. Father, we do thank you for the instruction you give us, and that it is the inspired word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week we spoke about the believers being a spiritual house, and this week we want to speak about how that the believer, believer is a spiritual priesthood. A spiritual priesthood. Well, I think we can see pretty easily where Peter is going with this line of reasoning. That he is writing to the dispersion, many of them being Jewish, people themselves who have converted to Christianity. And of course there is also a large population of Gentile people. And many of those also came to know Christ as their Savior. And we find that the instruction that often comes through the scripture is manifold in that it doesn't address just necessarily one people, but all people who have come to faith in Christ. As we took particular note that as a spiritual house, as living stones, verse 5, he also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ, we find that that spiritual house is made up 
of the universal church of Christ. And, of course, when we stop and think about that, there are many within the universal body of Christ. How wonderful it is to contemplate and consider that that spiritual house is talking about believers from every walk of life and every century that they have lived since Christ himself came and died for their sins upon the cross. And not only them, but we know the people of Israel themselves in the Old Testament formulate a part of God's plan for the end of the ages and that he will revive his, God, his chosen people even after the raptured church is taken out. And no matter what view you hold of the rapture, it really doesn't matter. God's plan of redemption and his taking of his people to heaven is going to happen. Whether it's pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or wherever you want to put it, have your way. But God's going to have his way first with the true understanding of all that. But the important thing that we must take note of is that God is building a spiritual house God is building and has a spiritual priesthood. God has a people who was called out by his name. And that is something that we all should rejoice in and be thankful for. That God is doing this. Believers, a spiritual priesthood. And, of course, Christ is our chief cornerstone. And we find that the typology, if you will, being used, or the analogy being, being brought out of this here, is concerning the temple. Well, in the Old Testament, the temple was a, the central focus of where the chosen people of God worshipped. They went to the temple to worship. And they brought their sacrifices. And there were a priesthood. And they offered those sacrifices unto the Lord. And as Christ came to die for our sins, according to the scriptures, the very Son of God, the incarnate of God himself coming to take upon himself human flesh, we find that it was his design to bring forth also a chosen people. Even though Israel rejected, God would continue his great plan, his great redemptive plan, and that he would make a people unto himself, a chosen people unto himself. And so we find that the temple in the Old Testament, uh, Peter uses as a means to say, the temple was being built. It is a building block of living stones, Christians, believers, who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And believers are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, as he says, taking that same model of the Old Testament. A chosen generation of people. A royal priesthood. And that they should be a people unto God. And then, of course, he encourages them to abstain from fleshly lusts, verse 11 here, and we'll come to that in a little bit. And we know the significance of that uh, particular exhortation. 
because it is necessary for the a holy people, a chosen people, a royal priesthood to be truly sanctified unto God. And the only way that they can be truly sanctified unto God is to live holy unto God. And so they must abstain from the things of the world, especially those things that war against the soul, as Peter says here in this passage. And then also he asks them to walk uprightly among the Gentiles. That is, uh, you know, people are watching, as it were. And, of course, the, the first ones that will point out that you are making some mistake is somebody who isn't a Christian, not, who, not the ones who are Christians. Though there might be some mean-spirited Christians who will say something to you. But it will be the world that will tell you you're not living up to your standard. So he tells them to walk uprightly and lastly to live obedient in verses 13 through 15. Obedient unto God, obedient unto the authorities, the government. But yet we find that the scripture is very quick to point out we should obey God rather than man but only in those things that are truly against what God has told us to do. Um, even Jesus was quick to um, tell them to pay taxes, and he would, um, he would say, go catch the fish. What are you going to find in his mouth? Whose inscription is on the coin? And he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and render to God the things that are God's. Well, we have much to learn from the scriptures, don't we? And it is a constant reminder to us every time we come to the scriptures of these things. So let us begin here at this uh, passage in verse, in verse, uh, well, let's back up to verse 7 just for a moment. Unto you, therefore, who believe, it is precious, but unto them that are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And, of course, he is referring back to uh, the cornerstone of the temple, and he refers to Christ as that cornerstone. And in verse 6, he says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, Precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. I remember one of the things that they, um, the professors at college, where I went to Bible college uh, in Florida at the time, although I didn't finish there, uh, one of the things they said, well, you should pick out a life verse. And so in chapel, um, they had us to, all of us young students, to pick out our life verse. And this was my life verse. This was the one I picked out. Um, it just seemed to be the one that stood out to me, um, and I can see why that it would stand out. Because Christ becomes the cornerstone of our life, our very life as, as Christians. He is, the, he is the, one, the one building block of our lives as being Christians that leads us on for his praise and for his glory. And so Peter um, uses this analogy 
laying the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, the elect precious cornerstone, and the person who believes on him, those who believe on him, shall not be confounded. In verse 8 then, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to them who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now we spoke, I spoke about this briefly um, last week, and we find that this same stone that every believer builds their life upon as a Christian is the same stone that the unbelievers uh, trips over. They trip over it. And the whole idea is they not only trip over it, but they damage their own self in the process. Um, I don't know if you've ever tripped on something, but usually it leads to an injury of some sort. Uh, you, may, you may trip over a rock or something, or a stub, or a, um, a stone, or just about anything, but either you stub your toe and hurt your, hurt your foot, or else you fall and injure yourself in some other way. And isn't it true that those who stumble at Christ, they injure themselves spiritually? Um, they, their hearts are hardened much more upon this very thing, that Christ came to die for their sins according to the Scripture. And there are many who stumble upon this. They are somehow offended, and the cross of the cross is an offense to the unsaved. But we find that Christ is precious. He is precious to those who do not stumble, but rather build their life upon that foundation which no other man lay, as we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Christ is that foundation for our lives. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a people of his own, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so Christ is our chief cornerstone, and we have been chosen as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Well, the, um, the analogy that is using here is so rich um, that I guess it leads to a whole Old Testament study, doesn't it? To really delve into that uh, understanding of what that chosen people, a royal priesthood, is all about. And since we don't have time to do that kind of a study, we must fall upon your clear memory of what the Old Testament is all about in that particular manner. And realize that as God is building this spiritual house of which we are a part, He has chosen us unto Himself. We are a chosen, a chosen people. And a chosen people is called of God. And that calling and, of course, the election of God is very much within the framework of God's authorship. Referring back to Ephesians chapter 1 just for a moment, 
In verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, of course, we could read on, but the point is that God has chosen a people unto himself. Now, we know how adequately God did choose a people in the Old Testament. He called Abraham out of the earth, the Chaldees, that Abraham became known as the father of Israel. Abraham had children. And we find that each one of them was to carry on the promised covenant which God gave to them. And so we find that God did provide for a chosen people in the Old Testament. And likewise, in the New Testament, as he is building a spiritual house of those who are believers we find that he is also building that spiritual house. Now, yes, for a time, God has laid aside Israel because of their unbelief. But we know that there will be a time when he will come back to that and fulfill the promise that he made to them and that he will call a people back unto himself. I'll just refer to one particular verse in... Hosea, we find that he used the birth of uh, two children, the birth of Lo-Ruhamah and Lo-Ami. And of course, Hosea had these children by um, a woman who was uh, considered to be unfaithful. And of course, it is a picture of Israel Israel was unfaithful to God. And uh, so we find that in Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Well, we know even though Israel went into captivity, God would call them back out of captivity. God would establish his people again. And though this is talking about probably that and more in particular, yet we find that God, in a very real way, established a people in their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, God established a people who were not the people of God. And we find that uh, in Christ, of course. And... um, Just to underscore um, 
that very thing that happened, of course, in Christ, when we refer to John chapter 10, we find that Christ became that shepherd of the sheep. And the shepherd of the sheep, being a true shepherd, would call the sheep unto him. Some of those sheep would follow him and know him. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. But this is the verse that kind of, uh, kind of underscores what I'm saying about the people who were not my people become the people of God. And this is, this is the verse, verse 16. And other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Of course, Jesus would fulfill that very thing, wouldn't he? Even though he, he was walking among his own people in his own day, and he was calling to them, and he would have shepherded them in, uh, in, a very, in a very redemptive way if they would have listened to him at that time. But we know that in God's plan and purpose, they would reject him. And because of the rejection that they did perpetrate against the Messiah, we find that he called other people unto himself. And as he called those other people unto himself, they became a part of that fold. And as we sit here today, and as the Church of Jesus Christ testifies and witnesses to it, we realize that there are many people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ who are not of the Jewish descent. But there are many, of course, who have turned to Christ that are Jewish, and not to say that they, there, there wouldn't be any Jews come to Christ. We know that the Gospel has become universal in the sense that the power of God unto salvation is to both Jew and Gentile. And so that spiritual church, that living church, those living stones, are very much a group of people who have not only called upon God, but are living for God right now. And like unto the Old Testament, Peter is saying, you who are living now, you who have been called unto Christ, you are to be that people of God. You are to recognize you are a chosen people of God because God has called you unto himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has called you. And so in that sense, we find that this type, this analogy becomes a reality to us. A chosen people, a chosen generation, if you will, a royal, a royal priesthood. They are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Um, well, my Bible updated that just a little bit to say people of his own. A peculiar people. Well, I suppose when we think about that, probably the world thinks we're very peculiar. (laughs) 
And though we be a peculiar people, we are moreover a people of God. People of his own. We have, we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And of course, when we, find, when we read passages such as Isaiah chapter 53, we find that we are a ransomed people, a redeemed people. That we were going astray and Christ himself through his sacrifice on the cross, redeemed us unto himself and has saved many unto himself. No, unfortunately, all people do not get saved, though we would desire it. And, but we find that Christ desires that he have a sanctified, redeemed people. Hence, we find the terminology here uh, refers to a peculiar people, a people of his own, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. These are people of his own. This terminology is referring to those that God has sanctified unto himself. Just like the Old Testament, God sanctified the priests unto himself. God sanctified his people. He did, he did everything to sanctify them to set them apart as a holy people unto himself. There was no other nation in the world like the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. It stood alone as being singularly different and a people of God. The amazing thing, I guess, that we see is that they turned away. But it seems that it was all for a reason that God may establish His grace and His mercy to the world when He sent forth His only begotten Son into the world to redeem a people unto Himself. And so we find that uh, this, this uh, setting apart to be holy, this sanctification which God has done is one which is very singular people of his own, singularly a people of his own. And some call it particular redemption, just to use a little bit different term. I I don't believe in limited atonement, okay? I believe in particular redemption, if you will. A little bit different terminology, um, but I think it says something more we know that God isn't limited in anything that he does. Whether it's shedding his blood or, or the redemptive process of which he, he works out according to his own will. But particularly unto the people he has chosen from the very foundations of the world. And he has wisely not told us who they are. Except they are, he says, they are the ones who I have chosen. They are the ones I am sanctifying and calling unto myself. And we have every, we have every bit of reason to tell people the gospel of Christ that they also may know what it means to be sanctified and to be made holy unto God. Because Christ is the only one that can do it. He's the only one that can do it. And so, 
He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See, every one of these terms refers back to, in, in type to that, to that uh, people of God in the Old Testament, a holy nation, uh, a people of his own, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, the word praises here is much more than simply just to stand up and sing songs to God or to say praise the Lord. Much more than that. No, it's much more inclusive to accounting or recognizing and extolling the blessings of God manifoldly that He freely, freely gives to each and every one of us. There are many praises that we can, we can give to God that He has done for us. Many praises. And everywhere we look in the Bible, there's a reason to praise God. The reason to, to stand up and say, Thank you, Lord. The very creation which, which He has made for us is something to praise God for. The very fact that we have have a bodies that we are uniquely created in the image and likeness of God. To say no, nothing about the intricacy of our own bodies. And then, of course, the whole redemptive process of which Christ himself has redeemed us unto himself. His recalling a people unto himself. And every aspect of worship to which we have the privilege of entering into worship before God. There's just so many praises of Him. And this, who hath called you out of darkness? Now, you see, the world thinks they're more enlightened. Um, knowledge is increasing more and more. But the light of the, of the world, the unsaved world, the light of the unsaved world is darkness to God. I mean, like the God of this world who blinds the minds of those who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. You see what I mean? Now, Satan has created a darkness that the world thinks is light. And he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see... Now, there's a complete contrast there in terms, isn't there? And how wonderful that God has called us in that manner. We are a spiritual people, a people called by God. We are chosen. We are a royal priesthood. Um, and when we think of Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, um, and of the great court to which we are privileged to enter into before the very throne of God. Well, if there is any kind of royalty that we should desire to have, it should be to minister for Jesus. He is our King. The earthly potentates are not royal, not in the true sense as God designs us to serve him and minister for him. Our royal priesthood is quite different than the royalty of this darkened world in which we live. And God desires us to 
recognize that. So every time we're ministering in some particular manner, every time we're functioning within the office of which God has called us to, as a chosen generation, as a royal priesthood, as a people of his own, we are to recognize that we are serving the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That we are serving the God of our salvation. And that it is a royal privilege that we are functioning within that office to which God has established us. And uh, that would probably give us a whole different perspective on what we're doing. You go to a, a hospital and you minister to somebody who is sick. You're serving in the royal priesthood, ministering to that person. When you teach a Sunday school class and you're ministering the very word of God to little children or to young adults or to, uh, or to adult people, you're ministering within the framework of being a priest, a royal priest unto God. For in God's stead, you're ministering. We should drop the notion, you know, that it's some kind of exclusive society like a, a worldly priest today where he does his absolutions and walks out the door and doesn't really know the person any more than he would know perhaps his dog at home. No, the kind of ministering we do is when we, we, we go and we minister to their very soul and spirit and body and we enter into a prayer with that person or with those people that we're ministering into in some way and we are interacting with them on a spiritual level, a truly spiritual level. We're asking God to do something through us that, that we really don't perhaps understand what God is going to do. We just want to be there doing that very thing that he has asked us to do. You know, the other day when Bo and I went up and visited um, Eric Potter, I hadn't seen Eric for two or three years or more. It was such a delight to see him. And it was just a joyful moment just to be there and, and talk with him about the Savior and, and to see how he was doing as a Christian. And What was he telling us? He was telling us how he was witnessing to people. Every chance he got, telling us how he was witnessing. So we read scripture and had prayer with him. And then the, the, the guy in the, in the other bed, he says, come over and read to me. So we go over and read to him and what does Eric do? He gets up out of his chair and he comes over and, and joins in with us. <laughs> We're just, you know, that's the kind of a royal priesthood we are involved in. The true, true reality of what it means to know Christ and to share that same thing with others who may know Christ and some may not know Christ, but we're, we're, we're supposed to be sharing that thing, that very thing, that very thing with them. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people, a holy nation of people, people of his own that should show forth the praises of him. And of course, what do we do? We, the minute we get together with other people of like faith, we begin to share something about what the Lord is doing. 
we show forth the praises of God. We begin to extol the praises of God. Of him that hath called you out of darkness. Well, one of the first things that they wanted us to do in Bible college was, you've got to write up your personal testimony. I want you, they said, write it down on a piece of paper. And it's got to be word perfect. You've, you've got to know exactly what you're saying. And I want you to let the person with you, who's kind of in little groups, he says, pass your, your testimony to the other person, read, read it over, see if it makes sense to them, and refine it so that when you go out and you have an opportunity to witness to somebody, you've got a clear understanding of what you want to say about what God has done in your life. Well, I think that is a valuable thing to do. Well, you know, in academic circles, it might have been necessary, you know, to get a, a grade, you know, with it, if you're in college or something, it's necessary to get the grade you want. But more importantly, it's necessary for you to be able to articulate to somebody else what has happened in your life when you came to know Christ as your Savior. Because he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see. He's called you out of the darkness of this world into his light. And, you know, when you're giving your testimony to somebody, you need to break through their darkness with the light of Christ. And, and to do that, you really need the, the Holy Spirit to do something. You need the Holy Spirit to work for that to happen. And then he says in verse 10, Who in time past were not a people, but are now the people, a people, but are not the people of God. I'll read that one more time. Who in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, who hath not obtained mercy, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You were not a people, and now you are a people. You had not obtained mercy, now you have obtained mercy. Um, you know, when you reflect on that, it's, it, it's kind of like really saying something pretty important, isn't it? Have you forgotten what you were before you came to Christ, you see? It's really kind of saying, have you forgotten? Don't you know what you were? Because before you came to Christ, you, you were not a part of the family of God, but now you are. Before you came to Christ, you did not know the mercy of God, and now you do know the mercy of God. In fact, you know the grace of God. How important it is that we have a clear understanding of who we are as being children of God, isn't it? It amazes me every time I read it. It amazes me every time I think about it. And I suppose it makes me very ashamed because sometimes I don't always act like I should, what, I, I, like I should uh, concerning this thing, this matter of being truly a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people of his own.
And so we need to we need to reflect upon that, don't we? We need to really reflect upon that. Um, this takes us to the third one here. We're getting into that now, he says, "Dearly beloved, I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts." Now, Pastor Bo, of course, was getting into that this morning, and he was giving us some good good thoughts there. But abstinence—that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Because it. It impacts us on a level where it says you can't do something. You have to not do some things. I remember years ago in, in the church we were attending, there was a little track that says, Others can, but you cannot. Basically, we're saying the same thing. Others can do certain things, but you cannot. And, and that's really true. It's really true. If we're going to abstain from fleshly loss, we have to realize others can do certain things, but we cannot do them. Not as a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people of his own. There are things that we can't do. And it's difficult, of course. And in fact, it wouldn't even be here Peter wouldn't even be saying it if it wasn't true and if it wasn't something that every person had some encounter with along the way. We've all encountered what this means to abstain from fleshly loss. We all know what that is all about. So it isn't like it isn't, it isn't, it isn't for somebody. Somebody's excluded. No, it's for everybody. Everybody, everybody can, everybody should take that to heart and say, there are some things I can't do. There are some fleshly lusts I should not take part in. And, you know, we, we always think of the worst things naturally, but that may not necessarily be the thing that you need to pay attention to. But whatever it is that impacts you, the Lord says, don't do it. Because there's a watching world. Don't do it. I think of David. Every time I encounter something on this level. King David. And I think it was right after David had been told by Joab, don't number the people. God told David he shouldn't number the people. And Joab knew that he shouldn't number the people. And Joab told David he shouldn't number the people. He went ahead and numbered the people. It showed unbelief and distrust in God. Now you say, well, how, well, how does that? Well, one of the things David had to come and come to grips with was was he going to what kind of punishment was he going to receive because of his disbelief? And finally he came to the point where he says, "Lord, do whatever you want to do, but don't let me fall into the hands of man. There is no mercy, 
mercy in the hands of man. And David accepted what God designed to punish him with. And I guess some, some thousands of people of his people died. But the thing that stays with me, you know, is when something takes place, when, there is ne- when God has to chasten us for something, Lord, don't let me fall into the hands of man. Let, you know, God is the one who has to do the correcting in our lives. We should never put ourselves in the place where we fall into the judgment of man. It is not a good place to be. But God is merciful. And he is faithful. And so we find that uh, he, Peter instructs them here to take this into account. As sojourners and pilgrims, as those who are strangers in this world and just walking through this world as we all are as Christians, we're walking through this world. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. You know, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. We're we're strangers, we're, we're pilgrims, we're walking through this world. He says abstain from fleshly lusts. God has a reason for you to be here. Be sanctified unto him. And it's not as though, you know, that we won't be challenged on this particular matter more than once. Oh, you can believe it's going to come up a number of times. And every time it comes up, we'll be faced with, you know, making the choice. Are we going to do this or that? Are we going to be a royal priesthood? Are we going to be a chosen generation? Are we going to reflect that we are a people of God's own choice and design? Or are we going to be something else? Well, verse 12, having your behavior honest among the Gentiles, so he says that this uh, this kind of follows, doesn't it? If, if, if we abstain from fleshly loss, he says, having your behavior honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, of course, they may by your own good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So, in other words, if you will be true, if you will be that people of God, if you will be a, as it were, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a people called out by God, if you will be that people who will abstain from fleshly loss, if you will do those things, he says, you know the world is going to be on your case anyway. They're going to, at, at every turn they're going to do something to, to they'll probably kick you if they can while you're down. They'll give you a good swift kick. (laughs) He says, but remember this. Remember this. They may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The the idea of the word uh, behold here isn't like just once. 
the word carries the thought of over a long period of time. They're, they're looking, they're beholding you over a long period of time. There's this one family that lived in Porter Village on 25. My mother-in-law and father-in-law watched that same car go to church every single Sunday. They beheld that family. They didn't go to church. But they was watching that family go to church every single Sunday. And Debbie knows who that family is. Uh, she knew them well. They were beholding the good works of those who went to church every single Sunday and had a testimony for Christ. And he says here, which they shall behold, and then the outcome, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, this can mean two things. It can mean possibly at the day of judgment, when God visits, visits mankind on the day of judgment. Or it can mean, and probably I would think it's probably more this particular view, is that when the Lord speaks to them about their need for Christ, they will glorify God. That would kind of be more in line with having a clear testimony over a period of time. Now, some people, you just don't, you can't get through to them. You know, no matter what you say, you just can't get through to them. But your consistent Christian living over a period of time may be that one thing that God will use that will glorify God in the day of visitation. When God visits them and says, are you going to believe in me or not? Will you believe that I have come to die for your sins according to the scriptures? Will you trust in me? as your Savior. And if they do, they will glorify God. You see. No, it isn't a notch on our spiritual gun belt or anything. No, it's being faithful and living in a sanctified way and trusting in the one who is able to work in and through us as the ones he has redeemed out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a spiritual priesthood. The priesthood of the believer. Yes, we do come to God and it does imply prayer and we need to intercede for other people and but believe me, you will do an awful lot of praying and you will do an awful lot of interceding and nobody will probably ever know about it. But the one thing you will do that they will know about is a consistent Christian life that ministers the spiritual life of God to others. That people will see. And when you do abstain from the world and the things of it and you are known for it, 
they will see it. And when you get up and you go to church every single Sunday and your neighbors and your friends know you are doing it every single Sunday because you are a believer and you aren't willing to kind of fluff it off, they will see it and they will know it. We perhaps minister to more people by the way we live than we ever will by the things that we say to them. Well, we don't have time to do the other three verses. I've already taken you over 15 minutes, so um, we'll leave it there for now. Shall we pray? Loving Father, we do thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you will sanctify my life more. Not because I deserve it, Lord, but just because I want to glorify you. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercies and your great blessing that you give to us through Christ our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, uh, turn for our closing hymn to 455. 455, take my life and let it be.